0: For more information, visit www.novic.co. This episode is brought to you by Zebedee, which welcomes you to a new era of monetization and user retention. Zebedee provides a plug-and-play API and SDK for seamless integration of instant, borderless, and low-fee payments using the Bitcoin Lightning Network. With fees less than one cent, Zebedee powers over 4,000 developers across sectors, processing millions of transactions monthly. You too can unlock the potential of borderless transactions to better engage and monetize your global user base, including the unbanked, and simplify the way you handle payments. Start for free at Zebedee.io, integrate with just a few steps, and monetize your experiences. Again, that's Zebedee.io, or check out the link in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, three great panelists, as always, Dave, Matt, and Felipe. How are you guys doing? Hey, great. Thanks. Dave, I think you had something you want to share with everyone?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to announce in conjunction with Navic that I'm starting up a fractional CO and operations consulting services. These days, we know the teams are focused on making great games, but everyone needs to make sure they're also focused on having a great business. And with the reality of the games business today, many studios want to focus their cash on those games and may not want to or be able to afford a full-time operations person. So a fractional operations specialist can help ensure that you structure your business for success while focusing on a great game. So the services I'll be offering are around production company pipelines and processes such as overseeing HR, recruiting, finance, as well as helping with business development and contracts. And for those really tough questions, if I don't have the answers on hand, even though I'm bringing 30 years of experience, To the table, I do have an extensive network of experts to be able to call upon. Yep, looking forward to seeing if there are teams out there that I can help. It's a very interesting time inside the industry. A lot of people looking for for new roles, and a number of people thinking about starting up potentially new companies or companies trying to figure out how can they do the best at stretching the the funds that they have. So instead of hiring full time staff, looking at some people to help out. Be it fractional COO is what I'm offering, fractional CFO or, or such details around it will be in the show notes and uh, yeah i'm really looking forward to uh, helping out anybody that i can awesome how should they get a hold of you through navic or do you directly? Uh, either way through either dave uh the website again will be inside the show notes or through navic uh navic will be able to point, uh, point folks to me as well
1: Awesome. I'm sure you've all heard quite a bit of Dave here to know that he knows what he's doing and what he's talking about. So hopefully that'll be a great thing to see kick off here this year. As uh, like you said, a lot of people may need that as things shuffle around quite a bit, I imagine this year in general. Awesome. Great to hear, Dave. We have a full just docket of topics today as well as a full house of people. So I think a lot of great stuff to discuss. We'll see if we get to all of it. We've got some stuff around China and their gaming restrictions. Maybe a pullback. Maybe u turn Tencent on a similar topic, but maybe not... The good news that they would hope to be sharing EA and Microsoft with some earnings and more discussion around Microsoft in general after their acquisition, some layoffs. Apple, in a very interesting spot in general, we will definitely be digging into that one. And then just some statistics we've got around young gamers and smartphones versus consoles. So why don't we just jump right into the first one around China and relating to the, the proposed bans. And why don't you recap the ones that were up as well, make sure people know for context.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So China proposed some, some, some bans uh, on several widely used monetization tactics from its, like, by the government. And the proposed bans had included the login rewards, incentives for repeat or first time spenders. I would say, like, many of the monetization tactics that, like, many, like, not just Chinese games, but like, maybe. Gacha systems that use like many type of games, so this was like really I could say dangerous or like problematic for many companies. Like the base, the business model is based on those, and they may face and in certain times trying to figure out how to change and adapt to the regulation. Indeed, the adoption, the adoption by the market was like the stocks for several Chinese companies like really dropped heavily uh, after this announcement. It was taken as very severe changes, which has like the, all these criticisms probably has forced the China government to to make a U-turn and remove these proposals, or at least like the, the webpage that was hosting this is no longer having them. And I feel like uh, the market also has responded to this and like uh, several of the company stocks have uh, regained some of the value. I don't know exactly if to the same level or not, but at least it has been perceived positively by, by the market. I don't know whether what do you think if this is something temporarily while they work on something that maybe makes more sense or is something that is still could be applied without creating like a huge harm to the existing companies or is something that they will take it back forever?
4: Correct me if I'm wrong here, Felipe. What I had heard, I don't know how true this is, but like I, I had heard that the original intent of the restrictions was to limit them to children rather than all gamers. And some of the backlash and concern from the Chinese game development industry was related to this unexpected application of these restrictions to all gaming. And that was at least in part why there was this like vitriol and backlash. Like my thinking is, if that is the case, these will come back in some form or fashion, right? I don't think it's fair to say that it's like, open season on game development in China, by any means, there's still going to be restrictions. There's still have been restrictions historically. So I would be surprised if these don't come back in some softened, uh, pared back fashion. But I don't know, did you hear the same thing when you were doing your research? This was originally intended for children?
3: But I feel like it was a long time ago that they had something like more focused on children. And I think also like limiting the, the time, they spend on the game, not just like attacking the monetization. This time, I didn't see that it was only for children. I thought like it was for trying to protect all the customers. So I don't know if others have heard something. I could.
2: Yeah, I didn't hear whether or not it was for children only. Announcement, anything around the announcement was uh, world, you know across everyone, and maybe that's why the the hammer fell on the people that did the announcing that the announcement was wrong. Potentially, that's why, rather than the people that are actually building out the, uh, the terms themselves. I do expect that they will be back in some manner. China's continue to say that their main goal is to protect the children. But I do know that they also have some desire to t- protect the populace as a whole, given some of their other restrictions they have in place. But I agree. I think it will be back. I think they're just going to do a different rollout.
3: Yeah, I'm reading now, I think part of those were tailored specifically for children. For instance, loot boxes cannot be sold to children, but the others were generally applied to anyone, like the daily login rewards and all that was for everybody.
1: I think it does make a little more sense for China to be doing that targeted towards kids, not just because in general that kind of makes more sense to target those things, but also they have more of an ability to enforce that because of the the previous stuff that was mentioned around enforcing hours where they were doing like an hour a day on these specific days. And like they were really curbing big time the amount kids could play games and they would do that through things like facial identification with an ID and things like that to actually verify that it was a minor not Now, of course, kids get around that, especially if they happen to look like their siblings that are have, do not be minors. They tended to find ways to get around that pretty easily, but it did have, there was an enforcement mechanism. And I do, I think this is stuff that we could see eventually roll out towards the US or the EU around. We have like COPPA stuff that has been a big deal. Even I believe there was like a number of lawsuits around, like the Fortnite even just had to settle like Epic settled around marketing stuff to kids or selling stuff to kids. And there's like, it's a constant ongoing battle. Obviously, China can do a bit more top down enforcement on that, whereas we're piecemeal laws and things like that. But this does sound like something that, you know, e- even if it doesn't roll out here anytime soon, is very likely to probably come back to China because they seem to want to weaken the ability of games to have a strong effect on the populace at the young level to make sure that they're doing their studies and stuff like that. Obviously, I can't speak to their objectives, but that seems to be the pattern and very likely possibly to return. And the question is, of course, like what amount of the audience is kids versus adults? Because if it's all kids, then obviously you're targeting everyone, right? Like then it is just the same effect as if it was applying to everyone. So we'll see where that goes. But on the topic of affecting Chinese stocks and things like that, I believe Tencent was one of those ones that got hit by that and they had some maybe not so great news kind of reflecting back recently as well?
4: Yeah, thanks, Devin. It was interesting The Tencent recently had their annual meeting, I guess it was at like a stadium in Shenzhen, and so this news leaked out of that. It was unnamed sources, but the coverage of this was interesting, which I'll come back to in a moment, but the headline was that the CEO of Tencent, Pony Ma, he's also one of the co-founders, was quoted as saying that their games business quote, achieved nothing, during 2023. And this is obviously like attention grabbing for the largest gaming company in the world to have achieved nothing in 2023. Maybe that's putting it a little bit strongly. But he cited that some of the new games Tencent had launched had not performed as well as the company had hoped, but didn't reference any specific titles. For reference, gaming is 30% of Tencent's revenue. I was actually surprised. I thought it would have been higher. And the stock is down about 29% from a year ago today. So a year ago, end of January. So certainly it's taken a hit. You could say that a lot of Chinese stocks have taken a hit in that same time, but worth noting. And then I mentioned earlier, the coverage was interesting when I was doing some Googling around this this report. Reuters says, Tencent Chief says gaming business under threat, but they're catching up on AI. But the South China Morning Post says... Tencent chairman Pony Ma sets confident tone for internet giant in 2024. By the way, both of these things can be true. It may be that he had a confident tone, but that he was down on the games business and was looking for improvement in the coming year. And of course, this is related to our last topic. When those restrictions were announced on Chinese gaming Tencent and others, NetEase and what have you, their stocks just went in the tank. And then when the restrictions were removed, their stocks rebounded. I thought this was interesting. Tencent is still the biggest gaming company in the world. Do you guys think that just because they've had some some underperformance, let's say, in 2023, according to their CEO, that they're in danger of losing the crown, whether it's by their own efforts or macro conditions in China and gaming conditions in China, like any concerns that they might be overtaken by another company?
2: Were there companies that had upticks last year? <laughs> I think it really was an industry-wide situation. And in terms of their stock, I think, so it did rebound some after the the new terms were paused by the Chinese government, but I don't think they recovered at all. I don't know that any of the Chinese stocks really covered all. And I think that's in part because people are still building in the, that those will probably still come back in some form or another. So I think there's still worry for for Tencent and for uh, NetEase and other Chinese companies in terms of what they'll be able to do revenue-wise in in China. Do I think they'll lose their position, number one? No. No, they're a behemoth. They own um, some some blue-chip stocks, I'd say, (laughs) inside the games landscape. So I, I really don't see them seeing any threat to their crown this year. I think they're going through a lot of the same challenges that a lot of companies are right now in terms of what their results are comparative to a year ago, two years ago, and, and where things are going just in general, an overall general sense. Tencent companies have gone through a large number of layoffs as well. They've been doing the same sort of approach to how they're game, how they're handling their game companies.
1: Yeah, we just talked about riot being part of that recently as well, which is under 10 cent and uh, I'm sure a number of their companies had to do a lot of scaling back. but there was it is worth highlighting there despite all like the stock problems going on in China, like the economic problems, especially real estate things like that, there has been some positive aspects, like things that have happened two of which the, some reason future one was around when this the announcement of that restrictions happened, they also passed through a whole bunch of approvals on licenses. Which they'd been holding out on for quite a while. Say what you will of the typing that maybe it was like let's distract from that or whatever, but it did offer an opportunity, especially for a company like Tencent that does a lot of partnering, to then start to allow companies to start to get games back in to the country. And then on that same note, we just recently talked about Netties and uh, Blizzard, Activision Blizzard, like picking up, and then that could lead to the introduction of games like Diablo Four uh, and bringing some of the other Blizzard games back, and that could also again help with that. So that. If that trajectory continues, that could still be good for recovery for Tencent, but obviously that's a big if, right? Because they tend to be hot and cold in terms of those game approvals. And for all we know that none of those Blizzard games even get back into the country. We can't really be sure on that. But I mean, in terms of uh, Microsoft, Activision Blizzard, all that, we actually, switching over to them, had some earnings reports along with EA to discuss.
2: Yep. So very quickly, I'm going to start off with EA and then we'll get to Microsoft. So EA released their earnings report for Q3 of fiscal year 24. So the three months ending December 31st, their revenue was $1.95 billion. net income $290 million. net bookings overall $2.37 billion. So breaking that down, their revenue fairly flat, up 3% year over year. Their net income, up 42% year over year and their bookings again was flat about 1%. A couple of noted a couple of points to note inside there. So their live services accounted for revenues about 1.71 billion up 3% year over year which is I believe a new record for for the live services inside the company. And live services now makes up about 73% of EA's total revenues. And then, But on the other hand, so if you look at what the full game sales were like, they were down about 5% uh, year over year and down 27% compared to the third third quarter two years ago going back into when the games industry is still seeing their COVID high. But I think one of the real bright spots was EA Sports Football Club. Continued to outperform expectations again this quarter. It delivered about 7% year-on-year net booking. And this is compared to... The last FIFA, which also had World Cup attached to it, typically the the yearly version of FIFA that does really well when the World Cup comes around every four years. So overall, I think the highlight for them was that they made the right decision when it comes to stepping away from the FIFA license. So there's still football clubs doing really well for them, but overall it was fairly flat. Now, and this also does take an account that there are, they don't have some of their big titles or big franchises coming out this year, no battlefield and no, uh, no need for speed. So switching over to Microsoft. So Microsoft saw total revenues of around almost $16.9 billion inside the Xbox content and services and revenue group. Now, interestingly, we're curious to see what – this is the first quarter where we actually see Activision Blizzard as being part of that. And it certainly ended up offering some ups and downs. So overall revenue that it brought into the Xbox group was just over $2 billion. But they did take some, some hits in terms of costs associated with the purchase. So overall, the operating income was at a loss of about $440 million. So definitely some pluses and minuses there. Looking at the very short version of the P&L impact of Activision, once you remove those costs, it would have been a net positive. So it'll be interesting to see how they continue to affect Microsoft's bottom line. But they certainly did talk about some of the the large amount of growth they had in terms of not just revenue, but also time spent inside now Microsoft Activision Blizzard games. So adding a lot of engagement inside that overall Microsoft ecosystem. Cool.
1: That's good news, right? Because that was a long time coming in that acquisition, Obviously very expensive, especially all the stuff they had to deal with going through all the concessions and everything like that. And those concessions themselves may end up being like long-term a little bit expensive in terms of maybe not being able to do the exclusivity of Call of Duty they were maybe hoping to quietly. It's things like that. I'm curious, too, what impact something like King had. We talked about Activision Blizzard side, but it's actually really Activision Blizzard King and Candy Crush is still doing quite well on mobile, I believe.
2: It is, and they're, still, they're bringing out new adjacent titles to the Candy Crush franchise, trying out a bunch of new games in very quiet, soft launch around the world. It will be interesting to see how the King side increases their revenues over the next while as they release some new games. But it certainly has a lot of benefit to the Microsoft, but certainly a lot of turmoil overall.
4: Not to put you on the spot here, Dave, but I'm wondering if they reported Game Pass numbers.
2: (laughs) From the... Items that I saw from the areas I was looking, I didn't see a breakout for Game Pass numbers. I'm going to go. My personal opinion is I think that they probably are continuing to have some growth, but not a lot of growth right now. Still not being able to match the numbers that they want to be able to hit with those Game Pass.
4: Okay. Yeah. No worries for context for the listeners. We're recording this podcast after they released earnings, what, after market hours last night. So it's still quite fresh.
1: I got to imagine that those Xbox past numbers will be important because the company seems to be betting a lot on that in the future. And it would be interesting to see if, and obviously they probably won't report anything like this if it's not good news, but what effect that's had on game sales? Because there's some of the big, the day one launch titles, that's a big seller for the past, but also the risk of cannibalizing game sales. Now, if those aren't first party titles, may not have mattered. Obviously, Starfield is a first-party title, but some of the stuff like, say, Payday 3 or some of the other ones that were big ones but that maybe people were skeptical to play may have impacted sales. In a situation where demos aren't normally as readily available as they used to be, for example, now you have the ability to try it on Game Pass first.
2: Yeah, and I do expect that we'll probably see some... Continuing testing around monetization, similar to what they did with Starfield, where Game Pass subscribers will have access to the Activision Blizzard games day one, but they'll have the opportunity to have some upselling available to them through exclusive content or exclusive timing. Starfield subscribe uh, the Starfield players were able to get access a few days early if they if they purchase some uh, some um, some DLC above and beyond what their Game Pass offers.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll see on the topic of Microsoft Activision Blizzard. Also, there was a number of things going on there around some layoffs, some position changes to fill Bobby Kotick's void, things like that. If you want to dive into that?
4: Yeah, a big time of change at Microsoft and Activision. The headline is the layoffs, of course. There was 1,900 employees at Xbox and Activision, let's say Xbox gaming broadly, that were laid off. And this represented something like 8% of the entire Xbox gaming workforce. So a pretty meaningful reduction in force. This was joined by the news that the president of Blizzard was stepping aside, Mikey Barra, as well as the chief design officer, Alan Adam, who was, I guess, a co-founder of Blizzard as well, leaving the company. The survival game, the often cited, much-anticipated Survival game codenamed Odyssey at Blizzard has finally been canceled after more than six years in development. So that's, that's sad. I was excited about that. But uh, in terms of uh, shuffling the, je- the deck chairs, the new leader at Blizzard is Johanna Ferries. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name. She comes over from Activision, where she was the head of Call of Duty Esports for 12 years. And before that, she worked at the NFL for a long time. And I guess there is some concern, rightly or wrongly, that she's an Activision person coming in to manage Blizzard. And this is what you might interpret as like the last, you know, checkmark or success for Bobby Kotick in terms of installing Activision executives at all of the subsidiaries, Blizzard, King, whatnot. So it's certainly a big change. And for her part, she seems cognizant of That concern, she released, or the organization released her statement to all the employees, and she seems to be recognizing that, I think I have a quote here, walking into this role with sensitivity to those dynamics. Very different organizations and cultures. So a lot of changes at Activision and Blizzard We know that they're going to be integrating Activision, sorry, integrating, yeah, integrating Activision Blizzard King into the larger Microsoft organization. We've heard talks about maybe a mobile app store coming. They referenced several promising new projects that Blizzard has in the early stages of development, but at the same time, letting go a lot of certainly really talented employees hitting the market right now. What do we think is next for this behemoth in the industry and? I'll just leave it there for now. I have some follow-up questions, but what's next for Microsoft? What do you make of these moves?
3: I would say it's like the normal consolidation, right? And probably in a different market situation, you will let a bit more time to do this consolidation. But probably at this stage and like with the many companies tight in the belts, they have decided to do it faster, right? Like Rather than later. I don't know. I don't have like much inside knowledge about this. And then I would say that uh, this is trying to make the, the integration more efficient as soon as possible, right? And like, trying to have like different heads doing the, the same thing in different ways and like being harder to, to, to focus.
2: Yeah, I think the integration is going to take time. They're going to pick the items that they want to get figured out as quickly as possible. I think part of that's going to be what their green light process is for projects going forward. Just because they're just the large amount of cost associated with those and when it comes to games that have been development for six years and not as and still not ready for prime time then i think there's always going to be some questions about will they ever be ready for prime time and where inside the previous blizzard style of green lighting games and allowing games to continue on i think there'll be a difference in Microsoft style versus Blizzard style. And as you start looking at how they can start bringing the Microsoft culture in, I think the green light process is going to be one of the first things that they're going to start looking at. And I think that was imagine one of the main reasons why.
1: By the end of this though, Blizzard won't look anything like it looked like a decade ago because they were already in a process of like being taken over by Activision people like to an extent like in terms of just control of what the company was doing creatively in a lot of ways. And obviously like the survival game getting canceled is probably part of that. Like you yeah, guys said, the green light process, you're not going to see the blizzard of old, right? Where they're just working on quote unquote sort of dream projects and long gestating sequels to, to hit franchises and things like that. Yeah. Cause that's, that's not Activision style, right? Like they, they pump out the call of duty games every year. They're not looking for these long gestation periods. And now with this bigger sort of takeover people leaving the company, I got to imagine like at this point, whatever kind of sort of independence blizzard had, is mostly going to be gone by the end of this. I mean that it could be for the better, don't get me wrong that Microsoft might be like, "Hey, we actually really liked what you used to do and shake up things for the better." But realistically, I think at this point Blizzard that kind of we all knew is pretty radically changed at this point and a lot of the people are gone. So I am curious what like the identity even of Blizzard looks like going forward, especially they can't all this esports stuff. Obviously like that didn't work out super great with, the, with Overwatch. I don't think we're going to see like StarCraft 3 all of a sudden or something like that. Diablo 4 did pretty well. As you mentioned, the earnings reports as well, like it had a positive impact there, but I don't see Diablo 5 getting instantly greenlit for the off this or it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, they did have the Warcraft game come out though, which was interesting, like in the middle of this process getting put out, but it's, I do wonder what does Blizzard have left to release after this? Because obviously they release expansions for World of Warcraft, but that's a little long in the tooth and uh, they've got you know, the two life service mobile games they can keep going for a bit, assuming those keep making money. But I don't know what they've got. Obviously, feel free to enlighten me if, they, if there's other stuff they've announced. But outside of that survival game, I can't think of a lot they've mentioned publicly. And this kind of leaves it like, are they just going to help on the next Call of Duty game at this point? I, I do wonder <laughs> what they're going to be doing going forward uh, that they want to be doing. But at this point, you've got people, again, leaving in the middle of this. And possibly because of decisions like that, we'll see.
2: Yeah, Blizzard has seen a lot of their long-term staff depart. Over the years, I think even before this happened, I think a lot of people would say the Blizzard of three years ago wasn't the same as the Blizzard of 10 years ago. But yeah, I do think that as you look at the top line infrastructure, the C suite of uh, ABK, I do expect to see some changes, especially in more of the Activision Blizzard side, just because that's more of Microsoft's wheelhouse. They have their own exec team already in place and will want to have that them staying in as the command group for the for the the new version of Microsoft, now including Activision Blizzard. On the other hand, I don't really see Microsoft really being that company that does wholesale changes to cultures of companies. If you look at Bethesda, there there hasn't been huge reports of Bethesda being absorbed into the Microsoft Borg ship, the same as what you'd typically find inside like Electronic Arts, for example, where the, the, the reputation for EA is that they just absorb everything into the EA culture and everything must be the EA way. Whereas I think Microsoft still allows the culture of the individual studios to, to be maintained. So I don't really, while Blizzard has changed over the last number of years, I don't expect that they'll be forced to really change 100% away from what the Blizzard identity is.
4: You guys are really hitting on like what my follow up question was going to be. I think like the two sort of reasons that two of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, that this acquisition gets so much play, so much coverage, is Call of Duty, Activision, and then Blizzard. We, as let's say, more experienced gamers, senior gamers, we grew up with a certain like image and brand around Blizzard and their. Sort of legendary titles, and oh, this is like a place where creative geniuses are pumping out these amazing games. But I I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Like, that's the past. Like, the founders are all gone. The OGs are all gone. They've all started their own other companies or they're working elsewhere. When's the last time Blizzard released a hit? Like, Diablo 4 was, I think, pretty successful as a launch, but as an ongoing live service, I think remains to be seen. Warcraft Rumble, I think is a really fun game. Personally, I think it's a lot of fun, but I don't know that it's going to be a successful, long-lasting product. You know, what's, as, as Devin said, like, what's in the pipeline? Should we be excited? I think that's, like, your point, Devin, like, about them becoming a Call of Duty support studio is hilarious. It would be the ultimate irony. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, I think it's really funny. So I, I guess my point or, like, question, if you will, is like, does the Blizzard brand the name like really mean anything anymore or is it just like a an artifact of our sort of collective nostalgia for starcraft and warcraft and these
2: legendary games i think it's still a bit of both i think there's still some of the blizzard name there but that's more about what are the types of games that are going to come out of the studio I agree it would be hilarious if actually no it would be sad if Blizzard became studio number 612 to work on Call of Duty for Activision but I think there still is a relative feeling of what a Blizzard game is and I think they'll probably continue along those lines but Blizzard has gone through the same thing that Activision went through themselves where it was they're going to take a look at what are their what do they consider their key franchises And if something's not a key franchise, if it's not anticipated to provide X millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to company revenue, then they're going to get shut down. I still remember Blizzard as of Lost Vikings, Blizzard, the very, very early days of Blizzard. And they certainly took a lot of chances on things. And they had some fantastic games and different styles of games. But I expect that they'll be, they've been streamlined And I expect that they'll stay probably that way for the foreseeable future.
1: It would be kind of interesting to see if this acquisition led to some mobility over to other Microsoft properties. Let's say the Blizzard people are like, ah, we're not really doing RPGs here anymore, but I'd love to be doing them and move over to Bethesda, for example, because they clearly need some development support, it seems like at times as well, and maybe a bit more than Call of Duty does. So it would be interesting to see maybe a little more mobility across these companies. Obviously that can happen without being part of a bigger umbrella company, but In these situations where there's rather than leave the company altogether and just go out into the the woods, so to speak, like maybe there's some opportunity for some cross pollination between these companies for some of those overlaps, because Bethesda falls into that same sort of like old school back in the day computer game company that has been around for a long time, made a lot of kind of. Somewhat beloved franchises, like pretty much Elder Scrolls games for the most part, but they made some cool Terminator games as well. I don't want to—I don't want to forget about those. But uh, there is some opportunity there for these two to work together, stuff like that. We'll see. Obviously, I don't want to belabor the point because it could go a million different directions. But one of the things you mentioned earlier as well, uh, Matt, was around the uh, the idea of them potentially launching an app store, which of course would be pretty interesting in general, and that kind of leads to the other sort of big topic that we have today around the maybe the opportunity for that opening up through some legislation on Apple. Yeah, I think this
3: is a big one. So according to Apple, will open iPhone to alternative app stores, but that's what they say. But what really they announce uh, is uh, something that we will discuss uh, for sure. So first of all, this is just for the EU, the European Union, and it's in, in, in regards to the DMA, the, I forgot the Direct Markets, How is the Digital Markets Act. So this is uh, to get the, everybody on the same page. Let's just start with what's the DMAI is. Uh, and it's like a, a set of rules from the UA to try to prevent some practices from gatekeepers. And they mentioned gatekeepers, like companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Apple in this case, right? And it's aiming to, to try to avoid them like having self-preference to their own products. And I think that the, this case of the, App Store belongs to this one. Also, by like fostering data access and interoperability, uh, forbidding to to bundle services, and then the customers having to have more services than what they really want or need, and having some advertising transparency. To so according to this legislation that will start to be applied in the EU soon, then Apple has proposed a solution specifically for the EU. So they have unveiled the, this plan that will allow users to install apps from outside of the App Store and use alternative payment systems as well. The changes, they will take effect in March and will apply to all iPhones sold in Europe. I feel like it would be like directly applying to new iPhones and the existing ones, they need to really update to the new version that is coming with this in place. With this, Apple will also lower its commission rates for in-app purchase from 30% to 15% for developers that use their payment system. And they say that these changes will increase the choice and competition for app developers and consumers in Europe. So meaning that they believe that they are really complying to what is required by this new legislation in the EU. But uh, there are some things that are not maybe publicated um, or transparently mentioned, and this is something that we could get to it in more detail in a minute. Uh, before that, they have been complaining that with all these, the Apple ecosystem will become like a less secure, a less private space, and it will be more dangerous to the users. So that's probably why they have started the campaign about privacy. One of the reasons probably was this, like where they started so so long time ago, talking about privacy and what. Privacy was so important for them. So then on the things that are not like, like the the other side of the coin, Apple has introduced some limitations to like who can create a new app store and what happens to the companies or developers that that enroll with these other app stores. And basically, what they are introducing is a, a new chart that the, they will charge developers a fee for every annual install that goes beyond the first million. And developers can avoid this fee by remaining on Apple existing terms. That means like not using third-party storefronts or payment, other payment providers, meaning that this fee is optional and they can choose whether to stay with the current terms and stick to Apple App Store and not use like third-party services or so if they were, they're really willing to use these other sort of services that they will be charged this fee. And like, it, it looked like they, they were trying to copy Unity because basically it's a very similar to Unity runtime fee. And I think like probably that it, it was their intentions in the response uh, from the Unity runtime fee. So not any developers wanting to have that. So they say, OK, if you stay with us, like you don't have to pay that, that you don't want. So that's the alternative. Probably they choose that very much on, on purpose. So what do you think about all these moves? What do you think about this Cork technology fee that they will uh, introduce?
2: There's a couple of other things, and some of it, similarly, is a little bit buried. But one of the items in there is that, if you go through the developer terms, if you decide to accept the business terms to allow you to go to a different, different store, you cannot go back. They have stated flat out it's in their the agreement that you signed that if you stay with Apple rules, fantastic. You get all you know exactly what it's like. If you go this new way, you cannot come back. What I've heard, but I still need to confirm is what effect that is. Is that on a per game basis? Is it a company-wide basis? Can you have some games that are inside different marketplaces and others inside the Apple? Knowing Apple, I would probably suggest that they would say, no, it's all or nothing. Either you as a company follow or maintain the Apple rules that you've had up to this point, or you go into a different store and then that's it's everything goes across. They've... Provided some calculators that allow you to figure out what does this actually mean in terms of the fees that they're still going to be asking for. And that Apple will also still be looking at trying to review the games that are available in other stores, not just the games inside their store. It'll be interesting to see what they can do in terms of forcing takedowns of games. But uh, they still want to, as you said, really want to maintain not just the privacy, but the safety. Of of any apps that are usable on side uh, iOS devices, yeah. I think the question is: Has Apple reached their Unity moment in terms of runtime fees and everything? It's interesting that the same level of outcry isn't there, in that Apple has said, "Hey, yes, we are we are in in compliance with the new ruling around the marketplaces." But I think if you look at what they've done in the EU, what they've done in the US and the Netherlands South Korea in terms of their alternative payments when the it's just the alternative payment side that's being forced, I do think that they are skirting within that. Yes, we've followed the letter of the law, but the actual, what the intents were behind that, they're doing their best to make sure that it's still Apple is the winner, not the developers or the public. Yeah, I think they're still trying to maintain as much control as they absolutely possibly can even with the court systems around the world trying to force them to open up some
4: oh yeah it's interesting you make the comparison to unity i think maybe one of the biggest points of difference here is that apple is good at messaging and obfuscation where (laughs) unity kind of fell flat but let's be clear like this is malicious compliance like it's really bad it's it's not just game developers who are speaking out on this like Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify, was just like laying into this on social media, and it's like it's not great. Like they're just uh, giving the finger to developers, like which is not that different from what Unity did. Apple is huge, and they're going to continue to like move the goalposts for as long as they can to extract every last sliver of profit that they can while they have this position of power. We as Little guys or medium-sized guys, depending on where you work, don't have a whole lot of power to influence this, at least not on an individual level. Collectively, certainly there will be pushback from the development community, for from big game publishers, and obviously from other companies like Spotify. And uh, you see some other areas of resistance, like, for example, I think Spotify and Netflix and maybe a few others have stated that they're not going to be releasing apps on Vision Pro, for example. Look, drop in the bucket for Apple, like barely, but it's something. The long-term concern would be like, do developers start to abandon Apple because of this anti-developer stance? Because clearly the consumers are not at this point. So who's going to budge first? I don't know. I don't think it's going to be Apple.
2: Yeah. I And I think there's also the, one of the other differences between Unity and Apple is Unity started off as a friend to the developers. They were embraced by the development community. It was about all, it was about the tide raises all ships type of experience a lot of love there. Apple's always been about Apple. <laughs> the number one thing Apple's wanted, always looked after is Apple. And I think this really is just a case of people just going, all right, here we go again. It's just Apple looking after Apple. And as you said, the consumers are not making any changes. The amount of revenue that developers would be foregoing if they decide to abandon Apple and just focus on Android, it's just it's too much. I think people will just suck it up and, and take it. Unfortunately, I do hope that the complaints, not only by the developers and that Tim Sweeney already has gone on multiple tirades about the various things that, uh, that Apple's done. So hopefully we will see some continuing movement on things. I think for me, the one plus side of the recent Apple announcements has been the uh, the game streaming apps finally being allowed on, on iOS and that being worldwide. But, uh, But yeah. I think outside of that, it's been a lot of frustrating news out of the changes that Apple's been making.
3: I would say also the difference is that uh, Unity did that out of the blue without anybody expecting it. And here is like Apple is saying, okay, like we are forced to do changes and like we allow you to keep as you are, or because we are forced, we need to do some changes. And this is the changes. So it's, I'm not the bad guy, it's the EU. EU commission that is the bad guys. It's, so as Matt said, I think it's like a, it's a, they, they communicated much better.
1: So this is definitely like falls under that ma- malicious compliance. And I'd like to see that become a catchphrase because you're talking about Apple being good at messaging and like maybe some counter messaging and marketing being needed to really put the pressure on it, especially to the point where hopefully at some point users care, not just developers, like that idea of like malicious compliance and them like just spitting at the system sort of thing, like through multiple court cases now, not just this one, would hopefully at some point make people go, maybe Apple actually isn't like the friendliest company like they've convinced us they are when it comes to looking out for us. Obviously, the privacy campaign was a great way for them to make themselves look like, hey, we're looking out for your best interest when it could be argued that there was a lot of monetary incentives for the strategy that they employed. So it would be interesting to see, say, some counterplay from Google, for example, because Google, while they still you know, are a little bit looking out for themselves and things like that, can be a little more developer-friendly. And then especially there was a talk during the trials of trying to bribe Microsoft and things like that. Maybe there's an opportunity for those two to, hey, if you want to release an alternative app store, why not do it here, over here on Android? And we'll actually set up some good terms and like, make it a good case for you. And maybe that starts to be something that maybe chips away at things because microsoft is also very developer friendly they've got a huge stable of games that they've just basically acquired through all this obviously it would not look great if they made them exclusive to one environment after that whole thing with call of duty but if it's not call of duty that maybe that won't be a big enough deal but this does feel like mafia protection racket kind of things like oh we would hate for something bad to happen to you because i one thing that's not said in here that i guarantee is going to happen based off of how they complied with the uh, the alternative payments is when you go to install something from an alternative app store, it's going to pull up a scare screen and be like, well, we can't vouch for this. This could be bad. Like the way that Google does for the unauthorized sources, because that's what they're going to treat this. Hey, you can install from these stores. Hey, like it could just blow your phone up in your face. We can't vouch for it. And there's also the other aspect, which is still going to probably require code signing from the Xcode side and things like that. And certificates, even if it's going through an alternative store, it's still going to need to use the encryption, all that stuff of the phone, which means if a developer doesn't apply and things like that, and they're like, Hey, we want to like cease and desist that app. They probably can just block that developer from being able to deploy apps that can be installed on the phone, regardless of the source. So Apple's still in in the driver's seat here and clearly making that, that very obvious. And I think as they implement this stuff, it'll become even more obvious because we saw that when they start releasing the screens for how the alternative payments would work, you could see it was even more malicious than you thought it would be, which with the scare screens and stuff like that. So I got to imagine like this is going to continue to push and see how far they can get away with because the problem is again, that if the consumers don't care That doesn't offer a lot of power unless developers straight up say, we're not going to release any good games on your thing. And you're going to be at some point just left with nothing left on the platform. But that would require like a a huge effort of Netflix pulling out, Spotify pulling out as well, and all these other ones, Amazon pulling off, like all these ones that are not happy with the, the ecosystem there, especially around alternative payments, just going elsewhere. But that would also mean Google would need to put a good welcoming environment there because Google also has their payment restrictions, and stuff like that. But if they were smart, they would be like, hey, just come over here. We'll be your homie. And even if it's only for a short while, that could be enough to put a serious dent in iOS if it were big enough, I think, but speculative.
2: I wonder if it pushes more companies to look at cross-platform play just because they can then get... Apple doesn't allow you to really push and say, hey, go do all your purchases on the PC. Through some decent UI, you can certainly make it more interesting, more appealing to purchase on platforms outside of the, outside of iOS.
1: The xCloud stuff is already, like you said, they're allowing that now. So that will be actually something that is cross-platform because that's played on Xbox servers, which means they'll be playing with the Xbox players. Yeah. I believe it always does the Xbox servers for all the games that I've seen, but yeah, there might be some that do with the PC side as well. And they just put Power World on there. So there you go. Everyone could join in on that as well, potentially on iOS in the near future. But speaking of smartphones versus consoles. A study around young kids in terms of what they prefer may be shifting.
2: Absolutely. The Maggot Games team, which is a research company, took a look at where players are being introduced to games. And I think a lot of people, they have it in their mind that kids start off with the Nintendo as the, uh, the entry point into the games the games world, the world of games. But Maggot did both quantitative and qualitative research, talking with folks, both their kids and their parents, went directly into their homes, spoke with people from ages 10 years up to around 44, according to the report. And what they've said is they've certainly seen a change in terms of where people are being introduced to the world of gaming. And how long is it before they start really taking switching in terms of from mobile to console and so forth? In earlier days, they may have started off with a Nintendo handheld as their first system. But when talking with 10 to 12-year-olds these days, 37% of them, their first game was on mobile. And interestingly for me, the second platform was actually PlayStation at 19% before they got to Nintendo. And that stays pretty consistent between the ages of 10 to 15 where, you know, that those the vast majority of the kids were introduced to games through be it a mobile phone or through a tablet as compared to being introduced on consoles. Some other interesting facts, by the age of 7, over 80% of kids play video games monthly. And then 97% of kids have played a game by age 10. At age 5, 38% of kids have tried games. And so if you look at uh, what that means generally, if players have been introduced to the world of games through mobile, and that still stays fairly consistently high in terms of the kids, the new generation of gamers playing on mobile – what does that mean in terms of where the mobile industry goes? What does that mean in terms of console? Are we going to see more cross platform play? As you look at the games that are, you know, the games that we typically pull out as the ones being really successful for the younger generation be that Minecraft, be that Roblox, be that Fortnite you're playing these across multiple platforms, Fortnite. I'm sure now that streaming and the alternate stores is coming around, Fortnite will make it back onto iOS. Are kids going to be looking at more and more mobile as their platform that they remember fondly the most as a kid? Growing up, I played the the NES, I played the SNES, I played Sega Genesis as well, but SNES was that really big console to start off with. And that helped ingrain Nintendo as that quality provider of games. Does that mean that the kids that are growing up today, are they going to have that same level of fondness for the iOS ecosystem or the Android ecosystem? And will we need to make sure as we're building out games that we're making sure that we're covering off the mobile? So really trying to work on those cross-platform games. There's been a lot of questions around the mobile mobile business overall as it's become harder and harder for companies to do effective ua does this mean that the because the upcoming generations of of players are still going to have a large focus on mobile that as an overall business the mobile industry is still going to stay really strong overall Uh, it's going to be more of a case of trying to figure out how to better find those players directly so overall, I think some really interesting statistics out of it. A couple of other pieces in terms of overall entertainment, music takes over from gaming as the top entertainment activity by the time players reach reach the age of 18. And the younger audiences are looking for definitely those social experiences that offer the cross-play abilities. We're playing Roblox or Minecraft as, as examples again. Um So thoughts on now that we've got generations of kids growing up with mobile games, what does that mean for the mobile industry versus console and PC?
4: One thing I think it's important to delineate is like when we were growing up playing Nintendo or or Sega or whatever, like we weren't fans of the Nintendo or Sega ecosystem. We were fans of the IP. And so no one's going to be fans of, Oh, I don't know. Maybe not. There are Apple fans, but I don't know. You grow up playing smartphones on your Apple. Like, it's, I think it's more about the IP and the oh, games that you're I playing. Oh, I don't know about from. that.
2: I remember no? the Nintendo versus Sega Flame Wars. Oh my God, those were horrible. It hard.
4: still exists today, right? There's <laughs> Xbox, PlayStation, Flame Wars, Android, I- iPhone, Battles, for sure. I guess you have a point there. But I feel like it's more about the IP of the games that you play growing up than it is about, it, let's say, in larger part than it is about the um, platform on which you're playing them. But to bring it back to the data, look, it makes sense to me intuitively. Let's just say you're a parent and you want to see if your kids are interested in games or you just want to keep them occupied. It's easier to download a free app and hand it to them than it is to go and buy a dedicated console. So I'm not entirely surprised that these are the findings, although it's good to get some actual data behind it. And I don't see why this is going to change moving forward. Those are my high-level kind of knee-jerk reactions.
1: It's not just buying the consoles, it's also buying the game. Yeah, I feel like oh, yeah.
3: my, my feeling is that like right? is it's more like the, the platform relates more to the parent, specifically at some certain age than what the really the kids want. I don't know. If your parent is a gamer and has a an Xbox, you're going to be an Xbox player until like maybe you are a PS fan, but until like you manage to, to get a PS in your house, it's going to be Xbox. So I feel like in this case is that like Parents hand the mobile phones to the kids, and probably even the kids are the ones that install whatever and get the game. I don't know. I'm tired of YouTube, and then I install the, a game, or I see the ad in YouTube, I click it, and whatever. So it could be even that, like, that, that's why they start, like, playing in mobile, because they don't have access to other platforms.
1: Keep in mind also that a lot more core games are coming over to mobile. So obviously the GTA ones were getting scooped up under Netflix. There was just a new Devil May Cry game that came out. mobile there's still like a lot of penetration from core and then the other direction as well like roblox fortnite all that stuff on consoles that's cross-play potentially with mobile and things like that so i think maybe the lines start to blur as well in this and we see smartphones is just what they have access to all the time because they're you're out and about or whatever it's easier to give them a smartphone as matt was saying like it may just be pure exposure at that point combined with the fact that more often than not the games are free to download so there's a like a higher chance they get the game because they don't have to ask someone to buy it for them, and more often than not, people parents aren't doing a great job of like securing the passwords to install games or to buy stuff or whatever. Anyways, but it's I gotta imagine a situation where it's just as much as inevitable or like obvious from the situation. Where I in. Mean, the question is, can they can consoles claw that back? If Nintendo at least has a, the most popular handheld. Like there's some opportunity to like maybe chip away at that because part of the reason for the the smartphone or tablet being popular is it's handheld and therefore like you could shove it in their hand at the store or wherever you're at and you need to keep them busy. In theory, you could do that with Switch, although Switch maybe isn't as easy for you to do that with potentially, but Switch Two. Maybe Who knows, maybe they'll design for that. Give it some nice, big, like, plush casing on it so it doesn't die when you drop it. But there's an opportunity. And I was even just looking at some other analysis the other day trying to figure out like what kinds of games kids are playing. And it was still a little bit of a mix between the Roblox, the Fortnite, and all that stuff. And still, like Nintendo games, it seemed like when it came to console, were some of the more popular franchises like Mario Wonder, Zelda, things like that are still, I think, have some hold but it's clear that like this as a study shows like that's receding, right? Nintendo is probably the one kid friendly company out of all this. And so that's why I guess why this is a bigger deal because you're losing maybe the more kid friendly one to just random mobile games. I do wish this was a little more granular in terms of the number of game, like the specific games to like really see, okay, well, what is it? Is it just Roblox and Fortnite? Cause in that case it doesn't really matter as much. That's totally cross platform. That's all over the place. It's on VR, even at this point, like, you can't really use that as a great benchmark. Obviously the PlayStation ones are maybe even the more interesting ones. If that's still getting some people over, what kind of games are compelling enough to bring people to console from from mobile? And so I think a deeper study on this would be, I think, really useful. And maybe even for mobile developers in the future to figure out how to better develop their games to address a future, like, future-proofed like future audience and also not lose sort of the aging adult audience that like may have grown up on consoles and be like, where'd all my games go? At that point, Steam Deck actually maybe even could help with that, right? Because there's a lot of people that are like, hey, as a dad, Steam Deck's a blessing because I can play it while I'm taking care of my kids. I remember seeing that with Stadia as well, with cloud gaming, stuff like that. So there is that sort of like aging da- dad audience that also needs an iPod, iPad or phone in their hands for the same kind of reason, or the mom out playing like Candy Crush or something on their phone. There's definitely these demographic audiences to hit, and they people age up
2: into yeah. these things. But I think as we look at what styles of gaming do... Did- people grow up with how does that translate to game design how does that translate to genres going forward we're seeing a lot of interest in the ugc side of things because of the games like minecraft and roblox and now seeing how does that actually progress into the older audiences so as those people that grew up with roblox what are they playing as they get older? So looking at, so yeah, smartphones certainly are the easiest thing to hand to kids. You're looking to occupy them, but if that's what they're gotten used to, this is what a gaming experience is, and this is what they consider fun. How does that translate to older audiences? Like if you think of the number of platform games that dominated when it came to super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, And what that meant as time went along, there were still attempts to try and recreate that magic somewhat successfully in in terms of Nintendo, and I think a little bit more unsuccessfully across other games and genres. But there was still the expectation of trying to do those platform games. Are there going to be expectations in trying to recreate some of those mobile game experiences across console and PC for the people, for the players that are 10 years old today? They've gotten used to a certain style of gameplay. Are we going to have to try and recreate those types of gameplay as they continue to grow older and continue working through the various platforms in the overall gaming ecosystem?
3: But I think this is very really tied to what is the input system, right? So in, in the phone, in the tablet, is like striping, is touching. That's something that is hard to replicate, and that's why probably the type of games that are more popular in mobile are different than the ones that are more popular in, in consoles. That are different. That are the ones that are different. That the ones that are more popular in PC. I don't know. I'm probably I'm old and saying this, but I can't play a shooter in in console. I need to play in a, on a PC. I cannot play in the console.
2: Yeah. So you, I won't even ask if you play shooters on mobile phones then. I've tried, (laughs) but
1: the funny thing is I find that easier than using thumbsticks actually, oddly enough, but it is, yeah, it's definitely a challenge for those of us who grew up like on keyboard and mouse. But I think the other thing that that you mentioned earlier on that I think maybe is getting even ignored a little bit in this is the social aspect. Like when we think back to when we were social on these console games, it was the neighborhood, the friends coming over, you were all playing, like you think of what a big hit GoldenEye or Halo was because of their sort of multiplayer sort of party aspect in those days that kind of helped them become a big force. And you look at Nintendo now and sometimes they are the antithesis of social when it comes to how like not online they are online friendly. They tend to make it very difficult to do online stuff. You have to deal with these friend codes and stuff like their inability to like progress more smoothly into the social online, especially post COVID is a situation where like things like Roblox, Fortnite, those things become the lobbies for the kids. They become the social experiences that we had more as a physical thing, but now they're all doing online, especially like I said, because during COVID, they had to. That may be a big part of it. If the Nintendo can't make these more social, more UGC friendly, like at least they had Mario Maker, but and like I guess there's some pseudo UGC in, in Zelda, but it's it definitely sounds like that may be an aspect. And you look at like even Among Us or some of these other like games that are very social driven or streamer driven, like these, all these different cultural aspects, I think, to what drives kids to play these games but i guess we'll have to see how this goes forward in terms of whether or not this has a long term impact in nintendo and they adjust obviously they have their strategy and will continue executing on it and they're not doing bad as a company so we at least for the moment but we'll see how things shake out but in the meantime i want to thank everyone for tuning in and of course you guys for joining for a very in-depth discussion that i'm sure could go on for a lot longer if we wanted to make this a three-hour special but a lot of interesting stuff happening this year especially when it comes to regulation both in china in the eu in the u.s like all these impacting video games on top of layoffs economic changes i think it's going to be a big year for gaming just hopefully in some useful directions but we'll see right it's only the very kind of the end of the very first month. Although if you're hearing this, it's already February. So hopefully uh, the Groundhog scene is shadow, I think is the good way to go. But either way, we'll catch you guys, I think after Punks, Tawny, Phil, or wherever you're from in terms of uh, your Groundhog's day. But thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you guys next week.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novik.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Navic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.navic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Navic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.navic.co.